Welcome back to the I'm Book Podcast. I'm April O'Leary, founder of O'Leary Publishing, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Jeffrey Shaw. He's the author of a book called Lingo and The Self-Employed Life. He's a host of the Self-Employed Life Podcast with nearly 2 million downloads and the founder of the Self-Employed Business Institute. His TEDx talk is featured on TED.com, and he's a LinkedIn learning instructor contributor to Entrepreneur Magazine, and he speaks at association events, entrepreneurial groups, and conferences. And today we're going to dive into the world of book branding. Let's get started. But hold on. Before we get started, if you haven't done this yet, I encourage you to stop what you're doing, stop this recording, and go over to O'LearyPublishing.com right now to pick up your free copy of The Influencer's Path to Successful Publishing, where we help you learn how to craft your book, share your message, cultivate your community, and build your brand. So if you're a professional, if you're an aspiring speaker, if you're someone who has just had an idea and you're not quite sure how to get it out into a book format, we encourage you to download The Influencer's Path to Successful Publishing right now at O'LearyPublishing.com. Go get it. I dare you. Welcome back to the I'm Book Podcast. I'm April O'Leary, the founder of O'Leary Publishing. And today I am so excited. We have Jeffrey Shaw on with us, who is the author of The Self-Employed Life. And he is amongst the top 15% of all podcasts for his podcast, which is also called The Self-Employed Life. So welcome to the show as a guest on a podcast. How does that feel? <laughs> it's kind of fun being on the other side of the mic. You don't have to do all that research. So, But thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Right before we started this recording, we were talking about how do we get connected? And, you know, being a podcast host, as he knows as well, you get guests that come from all different directions. And we figured out that we most likely connected through LinkedIn. And LinkedIn is just a really nice place to find like-minded people. And so I'm really glad to be here with you today talking about book writing and branding and the self-employed life. So let's talk a bit about you as a self-employed photographer, portrait photographer for how many years? 35 years? 38, actually. I mean, I still, at this point, I do, you know, this year I'll do maybe six shoots. Like I'm doing very, very little photography. I've been kind of phasing out it for 15 years. It's just taken me a really long time to let go of people that I had such long-term relationships with. But yeah, it's actually during my 38th year of being, a, I started obviously very, very young, uh, but yeah, it's my 38th year of being a photographer. I was going to say, my goodness, are you bored with the camera in your hands? <laughs> well, that's nice of you, but not quite. <laughs> so your journey as a self-employed portrait photographer 38 years ago, let's talk about like the early days of having your business. What did you do to find clients and start building? Well, you know, and... <sighs> If you, if you were to ask me, oh, 15 years ago, why I was on this planet, I would have said to be a portrait photographer. Like that was my, I thought my life's work. But what we realize as we go through this journey of entrepreneurship and we reflect back and I think we can only connect the dots in hindsight. Like it's really hard to, to connect the dots when they're being laid out as stepping stones in front of you. But in hindsight, you can kind of connect them. And um, for me, being a portrait photographer for all those decades, 
turns out it was more of the learning lab of everything that I'm able to teach others today. Because the portrait photography business in itself is such an unusual business. Uh, for one, like I always say, and my clientele, by the way, were very, very affluent. So I had a very unique business. So I was kind of the, the family photographer for very affluent families. And you realize at some point that I'm selling something nobody needs to the hardest market in the world. Mm. But what that did is it really fine-tuned my ability to figure out how to do that. I came from a very lower middle-class upbringing. But here I ended up being this photographer for very affluent families. And really, it was an in-depth study of who they are. Uh, and which resulted in my first book, which came out in 2018 called Lingo. And Lingo tells the story of how I went from this humble beginnings to serving this clientele, but it's also a strategy. It's the strategy of brand messaging. It's the strategy of speaking people's lingo, which I refer to as when you speak someone's lingo, you're speaking so much to their heart that it's as if you're sharing a secret language. It's sort of like lingo is like speaking the unspoken word. And when you can do that for people, that's what makes them feel really connected. So to me, my entire entrepreneurial journey can be wrapped up as it is today and how I teach other people is how to really, really get to know the people that you serve in ways that you, you touch their emotions. My, as I teach my students in the Self-Employed Business Institute, my goal is to help everybody market their business in a way that their customers say, wow, it's like you're in my head. That should be the goal of marketing, not low, no like and trust. I always say no like and trust is too low of a bar. Right. right. But to get people to feel like, wow, it's like you're in my head. You know my head and my heart so well. That should be what we aspire to accomplish in everything we do, in how we market our businesses and including the books that we write. Mm. Right. My, the greatest compliment I ever receive as an author, and I know you'll relate to this, is when somebody says, wow, I was reading your book and I could hear your voice in my head. Yeah. That to me is the ultimate compliment. It, it, sure, they're going to hear my voice on the audio book, but to read the book and to actually feel, especially for podcast listeners, people that listen to us on our podcast and then read our books and make the connection that it feels like the same person, that to yeah. me is the ultimate goal. Yeah. So how did you, you know, growing up in, not in the affluent world that you ended up serving, how did you teach yourself that lingo? How did you discover what the lingo was for the affluent market that you wanted to serve? Did you find that you somehow chose your market? I want to be a, a portrait photographer for affluent people and I'm going to learn the lingo, or is it something you fell into and you learned along the way? I'd say it was something that kind of unfolded in front of me. Um, so first of all, you have to, I have a fundamental belief in business that there's a world of people waiting for you to show up, mm. right? Because so often we're trying to make ourselves show up or putting ourselves. So what it took was a bit of failure. So I struggled for three years because when I got out of photography school, I went back to my hometown. Seems to make sense, right? You go back to the place you know. But I struggled there for three years, ultimately realized that I was barking up the wrong tree. Like this was not a market that was ever going to appreciate what I had to offer. And what I realized was the values difference. Mm. So, so it started for me first seeing a huge disconnect in what I valued and what the people in my hometown valued or wanted to value. What I mean by that is that I innately have 
always had a value for very long-term thinking. I've had life insurance since I was 19 years old. I Everything I have ever done has always been thinking about the future. And it, it was a big driver as to why I became a photographer, particularly a portrait photographer, because I wanted to create portraits that were so beautiful. They hung on the wall as art and they got handed down from generation to generation. And they capture those special moments in people's lives. So I was selling my portraiture through the lens of long-term thinking, mm. which you, I finally realized means nothing to people who don't know if they can pay their rent that month. Right. Right. So that unfolded to me thinking, well, what, who in the world is waiting for me to show up? Like who does think long-term? And I realized, well, people with discretionary income can afford to think long-term. Mm -hmm. Problem is I knew nothing about people with discretionary income, whatever that meant. I just knew it was an audience that would likely appreciate what I had to offer and would value what I valued. So mm. I took it upon myself. I gave myself three months to study the behavior of affluent people. So what I did is I lived outside of New York City. So I went into New York City and I spent time at high-end restaurants, high-end retailers. And I studied, not switch the brands, but I studied what if I were them or if I were they, what would emotionally trigger me? Mm. Like, what would make me buy that? What makes me choose that brand? I just, I literally walked in their shoes and imagined if I were an affluent person, why is that speaking to me? Uh, and for example, one thing I noticed immediately when I went to these high-end stores is that the most successful brands were built on somebody's name, especially in the eighties, designer names. My photography business had been like in a cliche photography name. I immediately changed it to my name and I, I then set forward a plan to build out a brand based on my name. So my clients felt like they were hiring the designer of photographers. Right. Okay. So it's things like that. So I really unpacked the psychology of the market. And then I flipped around and said, okay, now that I understand them, I can speak their lingo. So then I rechanged my branding, all my messaging, and just really stepped into speaking their lingo. So they felt like, it wasn't that I built a business and waited for them to show up. I built a business that they felt was built for them. And it mm -hmm. was a natural synchronization. And my business, when I when I got that idea, kind of relaunched, rebranded, just a couple of hours away in Connecticut, which I, rumor had it, it had, there's a town, a state that had more money than where I grew up. So, because like I said, I knew nothing about what I was stepping into. I just, right. I had heard that there was money in Connecticut. So I relaunched in Connecticut. And within a year, my within not less than a year, my business uh, multiplied five times. Mm. So now I had a ball rolling. And then it just, from that point on, it just took off really quickly. You know, it's interesting um, that you say that, that your hometown was the most logical place to start, which it is for most people. Right. And yet, um, sometimes you have to leave your hometown, leave the people who know you one way, right. and then show up somewhere else and now you don't have all those well i knew jeffrey back when he was you know and now he thinks he's such and such right yeah. so you went to where you felt that your target market would be and you showed up camera in hand with yeah. your brand new branding and look what happened in a year yeah so it really is interesting to think about I, one thing i thought you were going to say 
um, in high-end stores. We have a, a mall very close to where I live that has all the, like, the Louis Vuitton store. And, you know, they've got the red velvet rope out front and the guy in the suit. There's a Tiffany store. And when you go in, you don't see signs that say flash sale, 50% off. You know, you don't see any of those things you're going to see at TJ Maxx because people who shop in there, no, they're not there because they're going to get exactly. a deal. And that's the lingo, right? The lingo, that's the psychology behind lingo is that, for example, in, in my photography business, I would never talk about discounting, but I could offer things that as long as it was called an upgrade, mm -hmm. right? So same thing with, I always laugh about the, uh, you know, exclusive lounges at airports. Honestly, the hook is the free food, right? Mm -hmm. Which is to a clientele that doesn't need the free food, right. but it's, it's, it's just the luxury of having the free food and the free water. So it's, yeah, there's, there's all those subtleties. There's the subtleties of detail, you know, with, um, one of the things we did in my photography business is we produced really high-end holiday cards because communicating via holiday card is very important to this clientele. Again, not something I knew. My family didn't send out Christmas cards, but this clientele, it's very important to send out kind of an annual connection. And they often do that through a holiday card. And um, they were all custom done. They were beautiful. And they averaged about $10, $10 a card. And we're talking mm -hmm. about a clientele that would send out 500 to 1,000 Christmas cards. Mm -hmm. So it's a substantial investment in a holiday card. What mattered the most to them was the fact that after these beautifully custom designed cards were, were made, we would also give them a, a really nice felt tip pen that the color of the pen closely matched the color of the ink of the return address on the envelope. Because this is a clientele that every I has to be dotted and every T has to be crossed and they want to make sure they always come across very detailed. They may not have thought of that, but the fact that I thought of it and gave them this $2 and 50 cent pen with their, their $10,000 in holiday cards, mm -hmm. <laughs> that silly pen meant the world to them. But mm -hmm. I also knew, again, they weren't a clientele that would allow something to look sloppy. So either they or somebody on their staff would have been running around town looking for this pen. Similarly, like when we, when we would take their order for their holiday cards, we would, we would give them the choices of the stamps available for that season from the US yeah. Postal Service. And they would pay for their stamps. We wouldn't stamp the envelopes, but we would, we would buy the stamps for them online. And this way, when they got the card, they already had the stamps. Why? Because they don't wanna waste time or quite honestly, probably the time of their nanny to stand in line at the post office. Right. Things like that's lingo. Like that is when you know what makes your clientele tick to mm -hmm. such an extreme that you're, you're steps ahead of them, whether it's affluent, and it's true of any market, Walmart has a very strong lingo. You know, mm -hmm. so let's not be mistaken. It's not just the high end. Walmart knows exactly who they're speaking to. Mm -hmm. right? It's very discount driven, rollback pricing. They are speaking the lingo of cost conscious people. And that's mm -hmm. fine, but they're doing it 100%. They're not somewhere in between. They are right. speaking the lingo of their, their customers. It's so interesting. A couple of years back, my uncle Roger, who is in the affluent target market, I would say, I was talking to him. He does, he's worked in high-end retail. He loves everything to look. He's always got his pressed pants, you know, all of that. And he has never been to a Walmart. I was, I was flabbergasted. Like what? You've it's never not in his sphere. Right. Yeah. It's just not in his sphere. And it's so the other, one of the brands I think really, I, I think speaks to lingo really well is Target. 
Now, if yes. you ever notice, Target and Walmart are almost always right down the street from one another. Yes. That's intentional because they're, they're carving out different different parts of, of the, the audience in the air and the community. And Target very much speaks, whereas Walmart is a cost-conscious clientele, Target is speaking value-conscious. Okay. Right? People, Target shoppers will spend money. It's why you go for one thing and you leave with a cart full. Mm -hmm. Target shoppers will absolutely spend money. They just have to believe they're getting more value for them what they're spending. Right. Right. So these are the brands that, again, I've, I ended up over the you know decades I've been doing this, really studying across the board that successful brands and businesses have carved out the lingo they want to speak to a specific audience. The worst place to be is in this gray area that people don't know who you're talking to or if you're talking to them. But it's right. not just true of the high end and it's, it's just, it's all, that's what I love about, about teaching lingo is that I can, I can say it is flexible enough that it can fit any industry in any market. You just have to understand the lingo of the people you're trying to serve. And that includes readers. Like I said, I go back to writing books and how much my business experience taught me as an author, because I, I look at my readers the same way. I have to understand them and speak their lingo. Uh, my editor and I often in debates, like, we know what's grammatically correct, but nobody says it that way. Like, who and whom? Like, I know right. where you're supposed to use whom, but nobody speaks that way. Like, not my people. Right. Because I'm not, I'm not writing for the, you know, uber sophisticated grammar police. <laughs> I'm right. writing for business people that just want to get to the point. Yes. Right. So it's, it's, it's a very similar component to me as an author. Yeah. So your your book Lingo, which came out in two thousand eighteen, correct, was largely driven by your ability to understand the lingo of your clientele over all those years in photography. So, but your audience shifted because you went from I'm photographing affluent people who want their stamps and they want their felt tip pen to match their cards and all of that to I'm going to serve business, point business people who are maybe like me, maybe they're not photographers, but they have their own business. They want to understand who their client is. And so your book Lingo was born. How did you get the idea to shift from running your own business, doing what you were doing successfully to like, I need to write a book to really help people understand how to do what I did. Yeah. So I had, I had been speaking in the photo industry uh, as a, being a, as a successful leader in that industry, I was being called upon to speak quite often. So I was speaking at all the, and there are way more than mo most people would realize there are a lot of photography associations. We have a, there's a national association called the professional photographers of America. Then it's broken up by States and regions and chapters. So there's a lot of speaking opportunities. And I was speaking at many, many of those. And, but I was a unique speaker in that I wasn't teaching posing and lighting and the things that all the other photography teachers were talking about. I was actually teaching them how to make money at what they do. <laughs> because the reason I was successful as a photographer is to me, the camera at the, in the end of the day, I loved the art of it, but at the end of the day, the camera was a vehicle to build relationships with interesting people for me. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that kept my business head in the right place. And that is what enabled me to be successful. I often refer to it as the dirty little secret of creative businesses is that people that are highly successful in creative businesses, they like what they do, 
but they're not so driven by the passion of the art that they hate business. They actually see their creativity as a vehicle for something bigger. So as I was about speaking in photography, I was, I was talking about business in much broader concepts and people like the caterers, the hotel managers, they were coming up to me after my talks and saying, you know, everything you're talking about has nothing to do with photography. I'm like, I know. So that woke me up to realizing there's a bigger world for me. And so when I wrote Lingo, it was, I often refer to as my calling out card, not a business card because a book is way more than a business card. Like I never looked at it as a, just a, a vehicle for a business card. I looked at it more as a calling out card. It was my time to build a platform and make a statement that what I had to teach through books and other practices was bigger than the photo industry. So I wrote a book that leveraged my story as a photographer, but spoke the business lessons to a much broader audience so that people yes. in all industries, right, could, could appreciate it. If you were, you know, in 2018, I would say that that book was, or my work was for entrepreneurs in the broad sense that entrepreneurship is. Three years later, when I wrote The Self-Employed Life is when I kind of honed in. It's like, well, I don't want to just serve entrepreneurs. More specifically, who I care most about are self-employed people, which is yeah. different than entrepreneurship. You know, mm -hmm. entrepreneurs, it's so broad that nowadays, first of all, when you call yourself an entrepreneur, it can sound like you're in between jobs. You know, I mean, it's, it can have a different connotation to it, but it right. also can, right? It, but it also can be like the business you're building to sell which is okay. Mm -hmm. But by and large, most self-employed businesses are built by people who are looking to create enough income from their business to provide the lifestyle they want. Right. May or may not be saleable. So though, and those are the people I'm most deeply passionate about, the people that are pouring their heart and their soul into a type of business that provides the income they want to live the life they want and is changing other people's lives. They don't actually go into the business initially thinking, I'm going to build it to sell it. Right. So that's why I honed in on my second book, serving self-employed business owners with the self-employed life and, and not just even just the, just the business practices, but how do you get the life that you are striving for out of this self-employed business? So what was your experience launching your first book? Let's talk about that. <laughs> well, my first, and my first book was self-published, which I do, you know, it, it's, it was a, it was a good way to test everything. My second book is, is with a hybrid publisher, uh, but I am kind of an in the trenches guy. So there, it was okay to self-publish the first book because it helped yeah. me understand what needed to be done. Right. When you say you self-publish it, because mm -hmm. just to clarify around here, we talk about all kinds of publishing and yeah. routes to it. And a lot of times I, I explain the difference between traditional publishing where you know, you work with a literary agent, you try to sell your book proposal right. or manuscript in, and then under the umbrella of independent publishing, which would mean not traditional, their self, meaning you did all of it yourself from sourcing all of the editorial help and all the design help and all that to sort of the vanity press, which is a little bit more, you know, a little bit more hands-on, but I would say less rigorous in the editorial um, department. And then the hybrid, as you said, is sort of that top tier of independence. So yep. for self-publishing for you, was that like, I got to figure this out myself? So I definitely felt like the contractor hiring all the subcontractors, right? right. So, but I, I fortunately had a relationship with my editor who 
she's just brilliant and she also knew tons about the publishing process so she was an incredible guide to me yeah. right so that helped um the couple things that took me by surprise and i try to now pass this on to other authors is that for once you have to start so much earlier than you think not just in the writing and the, but also the the runway to make a book successful is much longer than I had anticipated to the point where with my first book, I recognized that I wanted to be on a lot of podcasts, being a podcast host myself, I, I know the power of it. Um, but at the time that I'm pitching myself to get on podcasts, I didn't have a book that was in a form that I could send to the podcast host yet. So I was way behind of that. I wound up coming up with a solution to that that ended up being a stroke of brilliance. And I now intentionally do it with my second book was, I mean, I literally, here I am trying to get, I'm pitching myself and trying to get on podcasts, but I don't have a book to send them. Right. So what I did is I created a 20 page summary of the book yeah. based on what was done. Um, and I was sending, and they, po most podcast hosts actually loved that because as a po podcast host myself, I read every book. Yeah. But that's rare. I mean, most podcast hosts aren't reading every book. I read every book of every author. Providing them with a 20-page summary gave them enough meat of the book that they could develop their questions without giving them a list of questions that might be repeated in interview after interview. But right. it also saved them a lot of time. So that was kind of the way I fixed the first book. Now, the second book, I did that intentionally. Even though the book was done, I now was sending the podcast hosts the completed PDF, as well as a 32 page summary of that book mm -hmm. and giving them a choice of which right. they could do. So one thing that stood out to me in publishing the first book is I didn't have nearly enough runway. The second was and being a business coach and, and uh, the founder of the Self-Employed Business Institute and caring so much about the business side, I'm always trying to make the point of what is the back end intention of the business? Yes. Right. Thank you. I did, Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I didn't go into that idea with my first book, Lingo. I was fortunate that people were reading the book and contacting me and saying, I would love for you to redo all my marketing brand messaging. And I'm like, okay, I'll come up with, I mean, I had been a coach for years, but I was used to being like, you know, a one year, one-to-one -one business coach. Suddenly people wanted a short fix. They said, can I hire you, work with you for a month or two? you redo our brand messaging. So I instantaneously had to create something to fill that need, which ended up being a huge financial maker for me, particularly during the pandemic when everything else shut down. Right. That was the thing everybody was doing. It carried my whole business. Mm. So then um, now with the self-employed life, I went into the back end with more intention. And I thought I, I created a kind of a three-month coaching and after even working with just a few clients, I realized there was a bigger need, which is what initiated the founding of the Self-Employed Business Institute, because people were reading this very chock full book of business strategies and then reaching out and saying, I want more. I want to understand how to do this more. And I realized there was a huge opportunity to create a scalable educational program that was five months long that would really give an in-depth teachings of what I taught in the book. So that's one thing I would tell everybody. So even if for one, have a plan for your backend services upfront, also be open as I always am in business, as I said earlier, to follow what's unfolding because often your best opportunities are follow, fall, unfolding in front of you. I thought I was prepared with the second book with a specific three month coaching program. 
But I real quickly realized people wanted more and it became a five month business institute. Right. But whatever it is, just be prepared for what you can do with the book and understand that if you've written a good book, your readers want more from you. Yes. You know, I love that. I absolutely love that you said that because it's something that I feel like I preach all the time. Uh, you know, my very first book, which I wrote in 2012, I had no idea I'd be running a publishing company. It was not right. the intention. I was a yeah. life coach. I was doing, you know, little workshops and whatevers. And, you know, and then I, I got through my life coach mentor. Um, he had an XM radio show and I ended up guest producing for it because his guest producer locked it. I didn't even know what that meant. And, you know, it was like, so I ended up booking all these authors because it was an all positive talk radio show. And that was his one criteria that anyone I booked had to have a book. Mm. So it was that light bulb moment, like, oh, well, then if I have a book, <laughs> right? Yep. It's not like you have to have a book that sold a million copies. Yeah. You just have to have the book so that 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 also presented itself with the challenge and the opportunity to self-publish, which I did for my very first book because I didn't know anything about yeah. anything, um, which then led to doing the same thing, an eight-week course and a workbook and a journal and a couple conferences. And so that book, while I cannot tell you it did not sell a million copies, it didn't probably even sell a thousand, who knows, um, but it did open the door to so many other things. Yeah. And for you um, with lingo and the self-employed life to see all that's unfolding is really exciting. Yeah. So, so I've made, and I've always, I mean, I've made far more money. I mean, not even comparable on the services after the book than the book itself. Right. Um, you know, and I, I think there's a delicate balance. I think, you know, as a podcast host, because I read every book, I can smell the books that aren't written I should say that differently. I can smell the books that are written with too much of an intention mm. of the back end. Like I feel like I'm reading a flyer. Yeah. Right. You don't want that. Right. You still have to develop. You have to develop a book that provides exceptional value, changes people's lives, gets them thinking, and wants them. They want more. And and I'm looking long term. Also, I know. And I didn't know this writing my first book. I really thought I was writing my calling out card of a book. And I really thought that was going to be it, especially after yeah. you do it and you realize how hard it is to write a book. <laughs> but really because of the editor I worked with and how much I adored, I just, after I wrote the, wrote the first one, she said to me, you do know by now you're a serial author. I'm like, I kind of think I am. Like I didn't go into this thinking I was going to be a serial author, but now there's absolutely a plan to put out a book every three years. Yeah, uh, That's the momentum that works for me. But I'm also looking at as the whole ecosystem. You know, you finish one book as I'm looking at the second book, you know, my second, when I was looking at the second book, now I'm already, I'm part of the reason why I'm in Connecticut for the month of August, I am beginning to work on the third book. So, but I'm looking at it as an ecosystem. Like what does my audience need next? What's the mm -hmm. next thing in their world that particularly for this third book, I want to speak to the audience who's already following me and I want to open it up to a much broader audience. Mm -hmm. So I think also if you choose to write multiple books, you can really serve the audience that you're writing for by looking at the whole of their lives and their ecosystem. 
uh, one of my favorite authors, good, also really, really good friend, and I think does an ecosystem of books better than most is Mike McCallowitz. Right. If you look at the suite. That he had endorsed your book and I actually just got his book, Get Different. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's exceptional. I mean, you're right. It is. He's amazing. But if you look at the, and he does a beautiful job on his website of having all, I think, eight books now. And if you look, it's, it's obvious all eight books are written for the same person, if you will. And his, his motto and, and the philosophy he lives by is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. So everything he's writing from his most successful book, which is Profit First, which is the actual money financial system to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. But all his books are connected. They're all, he's always expanding the audience, but he's also always addressing the need, the next need mm -hmm. of the same audience. So yeah. I think, you know, as someone who now really gets that I'll be writing multiple books, I'm taking that very much into consideration that I'm writing a whole ecosystem of books for an audience that will keep growing as well. Yeah, it's exciting, right? It's really exciting because having the creativity as a photographer, right? Because that's definitely a highly creative profession, but, you know, I have many um, potential authors who think that it's so difficult to write a book or how do you get that many words out? And it's just another aspect of creativity. And so if they're creative in some area of their life or they have experience in some way that something that's easy for them now and used to be hard for them, then speak to those people who are in, still stuck in the hard place. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's, yeah. And it's those people, yeah. Yep, exactly. And it's it's part telling your own story, but it's also because people, you know, want to get into your own story and understand the lessons you've learned. And it's also knowing like I'm fully aware there are certain issues as a creative person's business. Uh, for example, in my photography business, I see a great number of the people I work with, client clients that I work with, they really struggle with getting paid their value. They have a hard mm -hmm. time, you know, where from the time I was in my 20s, I was like, I had no problem charging top dollar. And I don't know why that is. Like, I just felt so strongly and saw the value in what I did. I had no problem charging whatever I felt I needed to charge for it. And I see other people. So you also can serve, like I address that issue for people that have the issue, even though I never had the issue. Right. But because I know them so well, I know their yes. lingo, I know they're having that issue. So right. that to me is so much a part of writing a book is just really knowing your reader, yes. understanding what you need to do for them, whether it's something you directly have encountered or not. But as long as you understand their issues, you can also address those issues. I love it. And you know, that is really at the end of the day, anyone writing a book that is, their goal is to have a ecosystem, as you said, of work that's maybe books, courses, um, mentorships, coaching, whatever it is, it's that keeping your reader in mind. You know, we have people who bring manuscripts to us and it's all about them. And it's getting you that shift from all about me to all about the reader. Yeah. And it's a, it's a little bit of a lesson because I, you know, the most important thing in our own world, right, is ourselves. Generally, most people talk about themselves, think about themselves and to say, okay, I didn't have that problem necessarily, yeah. but I understand my reader did. Correct. How can I address? And I think that's so smart. And it's such a gift to be able to give your reader something that's outside of your experience, but addresses theirs. So 
I've really appreciated you in this interview and all that you've shared. And I love what you're building. I love that you've taken your experience as a portrait photographer, and now you're helping the self-employed person to grow their business and to feel like, like you said, it's for those people who are working to make the living based on what they want um, their life to look like. And what an important uh, topic and group of people to serve. I think so. Place, so what's, the best way, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Sure. Well, my main uh, website is jeffreyshaw.com. Uh, and almost everything I do that is connected to that website somehow. Uh, we did mention the Self-Employed Business Institute that has its own website, uh, which is selfemployedbusinessinstitute.com. Uh, uh, that's my world, the podcast, everything. It's all, like you said, it's all connected. I was interviewed uh, as being introduced on a podcast the other day and you know, listening to somebody read your bio, you know, the book, the self-employed life, the self-employed business institute, the self-employed life podcast. And he actually said, he goes, are you seeing a theme here? <laughs> you know, you realize that when you're building this ecosystem and you're so on brand that you kind of wonder, is it, you know, but, but again, it, it, you know, it's working when people contact me and say, I understand you're the self-employed guy. And I'm like, yep, that's it. You know? So that to me is, Honestly, if I look back at why did I write my first book? Why did, should anybody write a book? It's for platform, right? Own your space. You write the book that represents the reader you want to serve and the space that you want to take up. Elbow everybody else out of that space, you know? I mean, just decide on that. That to me is, is the core reason to write a book and what i found motivated me is i wanted to own a space uh, as a and i would say the space i own not just for self-employment but it's a unique blend of business as my the tagline of my podcast is business with the soul right yeah. i teach business it's personal development and it's a little it's a hybrid that we don't commonly see in business books but you read my business books you also feel like you're receiving life coaching and that to me is a, it's a little bit of a, but that's my space. My people know me as a very soulful and strategic business owner. Yeah. I get that vibe from you. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because business is personal, you know, especially when you're self-employed, you can't hide behind, you know, some sort of other entity or defer to the boss somewhere else down in another department. It's like, you are the end of the day, the buck does stop with you. Yep. So. And your heart is so connected with it. You know, one of my core principles in the self-employed life is that your level of success is proportionate to your level of personal development. Like your business can't outgrow your belief in yourself or your belief in what you're capable of or your belief in what you deserve. Because if you've put a ceiling on what you think you deserve, you're not going to build a business that's, that surpasses that ceiling. So right. therefore, you always have to grow yourself in order to increase the capacity of what your business can produce. So there's it's there's an inevitable connection between who you are as a person and your self-employed business. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's the blessing and the curse of it, I would say, because sometimes if you just think about, oh, if I just had a job where I could just go and do this task and fill this job description, you know, I don't have to read all the self-help books maybe and do all the personal development work because you don't really have to face yourself as much. Yeah. But I feel well, like in a self-employed world, yep. you can't escape yourself. No. 
as I said to somebody in an email this morning, I was like, because they were, I think, two or three years into their business and, you know, facing all the stuff. And I said that, well, I said, it doesn't, it takes about two to three years before you realize you are now completely unemployable, <laughs> right? You've stepped into being self-employed so much that you can't, you, you, you actually are unemployable. Like you can't go back to right. that job because you'll never be happy. Like there's, there's so many, you know, with all its challenges, I've never met a self-employed person that said they would have it any other way. Right. You know, once you step in, you step in far enough, um, even with the challenges, it's a pretty wonderful lifestyle for sure. It really is. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank I will you. leave all of your information and the links in the show notes. Be sure to hop on over to jeffreyshaw.com, check out his books, read Lingo, read The Self-Employed Life, uh, check in and his podcast. And, you know, we really appreciate you being here. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Jeffrey Shaw for showing up today for the iBook podcast. So much great information that we can take and apply to our book businesses. For those of you who are running a book business, and let me just clue you in. If you have a book and you're an author, you are a self-employed business owner because you are promoting your book and your services attached to your book. So I encourage you to follow him for his Self-Employed Business Institute, read his book Lingo, connect with him on his podcast, and generally it's great to network with those of us who are in the trenches building our book businesses, building our self-employed businesses, and helping change the world one person, one book, one message at a time. Thank you again, and stay tuned for the next episode of the iBook Podcast, which will be launching soon. And if you haven't, be sure to go back on this thread and listen to all of the episodes that came before it. Have an amazing day, and thank you for being here. Wait, this episode's not over yet. Did you go over to O'LearyPublishing.com and download the Influencer's Path to Successful Publishing? Stop what you're doing right now and go do it. I encourage you to download our free guide today so that you can understand the publishing industry and how we might help you get your message out into the world. Go do it now. I dare you.